Today on Ag News Daily. There is no available vaccine or treatment. Um, there are certainly some vaccines that show promise, but as we stand in um, January of 2022, there's no available vaccine on the market. Like you mentioned, it survives in fomites. Good afternoon and welcome to another Thursday episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr here on this installment and I honestly don't have a whole lot of news to chat about. I think that everything was moving pretty slowly today from, you know, a personal standpoint for me and from a news standpoint. Don't have a whole lot going on as we kind of enter the weekend slowly here. Of course, we do have one more work day here on Friday, of course, tomorrow, but honestly, already starting to feel like the weekend here as things are moving a little bit slower today. So one thing that I wanted to go ahead and kick the podcast off with is an extension, a deadline extension. Because of the ongoing impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, the USDA is now extending program flexibilities to the improved insurance providers and ag producers until June 30th of 2022 or later. Originally, these flexibilities were going to expire this month. So these extended flexibilities include a lot of different things. So I'm just going to run through them really quickly. The first being that they are allowing notifications to be sent electronically, including policy-related info over the phone or other electronic methods to select policy elections by sales closing, acreage reporting, and production reporting dates, including options, endorsements, and their forms. And producers may sign electronically or within 60 calendar days. They're also allowing producers to submit a request for a written agreement after the sales closing date, allowing producers with inability to physically sign a written agreement because of COVID-19 to do so after the expiration date, providing additional time for AIPs to accept regional office determined yield, master yield, and irrigated determined yield requests for Category B annual crops, Allowing AIPs to request a 30-day extension and submit determined yield requests for Category C perennial crops, and waiving the witness signature requirement for approval of a sign of indemnity. Additional details can be found in RMA's January 20th Manager's Bulletin and the Frequently Asked Questions or at farmers.gov slash coronavirus. While we're on the topic of coronavirus here, I had an interesting study that I wanted to discuss saying that red wine reduces COVID infection rates. Now, this is just a a suggestion, you know, a study, but I thought that it was interesting because this study analyzed health data on nearly 500,000 UK residents and found that subjects who drank one or two glasses of red wine a day had 10 to 17% lower risk of contracting COVID than non-drinkers. Subjects who drank white wine had a 7 to 8% lower risk if they consumed five glasses or less per week, while those who frequently drank beer or cider had a 28% higher chance of contracting the virus than non-drinkers. However, I don't think that I need any more of a reason to crack open a bottle of red wine. I love wine. I can honestly drink red or white, but I also like beer and cider. So I think that there's a whole mix of things, but nonetheless, I'm going to continue to drink my beverage of choice. Maybe not, you know, five glasses plus a week, but definitely going to think about that while I might be drinking a glass of red wine this weekend.
As we continue to talk about supply chain issues, we might be seeing a shortage of chocolate Easter bunnies under threat due to supply issues in Germany. Tight supplies of commodities, including sugar and cocoa, plus global logistic issues could hit the production of these chocolate Easter bunnies, according to German confectioners. CEO of the German Confectionery and Producers Association said that the market for important raw materials has been swept empty. Longtime logistic chains no longer function. He says that but this could also have an impact on the upcoming Easter business, such as production of chocolate rabbits, because important raw materials, packing materials, or transport capacity are lacking. Chocolate makers are suffering from high world commodity prices, including wheat, sugar, milk powder, sunflower oil, and soy oil. Poor harvests in some global regions, coupled with heavy demand for commodities from industries in Asia, had pushed prices higher. The recent surge in energy costs with a doubling of electricity prices was also hitting Germany. So there's a lot of things really coming to play here on whether or not we're going to see a lot of chocolate Easter bunnies. Easter is one of my favorite holidays. My birthday falls, you know, within a week or two of Easter every year. And so I always love that time of year and eating all of the chocolate goodies that the Easter bunny brings. So this one definitely hit home for me. Something else that I wanted to talk about today is the intensifying issues between Ukraine and Russia and really what that could mean for agriculture. We've talked about from a market standpoint really what could happen here, but there's a couple of other things that we can take into consideration here. When it comes to the Ukraine, ag land covers about 70% of the country. They are ranked number one in sunflower seeds, sixth in corn, sixth in barley, seventh in rapeseed, ninth in wheat, and ninth in soybeans. So when it comes to global exports, this year the Ukraine is predicted to account for 19% of rapeseeds, 18% of barley, 16% of corn, and 12% of wheat. In an AgWeb article that I'm getting this all from, it was said that any disruptions in trade would likely be more felt for corn and sunflower seed oil than wheat, but obviously there would be major concerns if spring plantings were disrupted from these tensions. So of course, we're going to be keeping an eye out on this and really what's going to happen here because the political tensions between Ukraine and Russia are continuing to mount. Russia has placed 100,000 troops in Ukraine's borders and the Pentagon ordered 8,500 troops on higher alert Monday to potentially deploy to Europe as part of a NATO, quote, response force amid these growing concerns that Russia could soon take a military move on the Ukraine. So we're going to continue to look out for this and see if anything really happens here. That's just the latest that's been reported. And that was of yesterday. So we will continue to see what happens between the Ukraine and Russia here and really how that's going to play out from a geopolitical standpoint. Now it's time to hop into the markets here. And we saw right across the screen in the corn contract today, the March contract down a cent and three quarters to close at 6.25 and a quarter. The May down two cents to close at 6.23. In soybeans, the March contract up eight and a quarter to close at 14.48 and a quarter. The May up seven cents to close at 14.54. In KC wheat, the March contract down 22 and a quarter to close at 793 and a half. The May down 21 and three quarters to close at 797. Heading over into livestock here. Not great news really across the board here as the live cattle contract February down 
22 and a half cents to close at 137.82 and a half. The April down 27 and a half cents to close at 141.62 and a half. In feeder cattle, the March contract down $1.30 to close at 159.50. The April down $1.10 to close at 165.10. In lean hogs, the February contract down $1 to close at 87.02 and a half. The April down $1.77 and a half to close at 94.67 and a half. Ending things here with the class three dairy milk futures. The February contract up 34 cents to close at 1985. The March up 52 cents to close at 2069. With that, going to kick things over to my conversation that I had with Dr. Cassie Jones talking about African swine fever. Well, I am very excited once again for our conversation here today, talking to Dr. Cassie Jones, a professor at Kansas State University. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. So cats out of the bag now, we are talking here about African swine fever, and you've been doing some research in that. But before we really get to the meat of our conversation, want to know a little bit more about you and what you've been doing at Kansas State. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I am a professor in the Department of Animal Sciences and Industry at K-State. I grew up um, raising sheep, actually, in North Dakota and made my way because of a passion in pigs to Kansas State University for my bachelor's degree and my master's degree in swine nutrition. I got my PhD from Iowa State University um, in the area of swine nutrition and was able to come back on faculty at K-State about 10 years ago now. And as I was starting my faculty career, we were starting to see some, um, one of the first cases of porcine epidemic diarrhea virus enter the United States. And at that time, as we were watching the disease spread throughout different production systems, um, a lot of the epidemiology suggested that it was linked to feed or feed ingredients based on how the disease was being transmitted and entering new production systems. And that was a new novel route at that time, about a decade ago, when we saw um, PEDV, or that porcine epidemic diarrhea virus spreading throughout the United States. And so that really became an area of, of emphasis and, and interest of us um, or for us here at K-State. And we put together a feed safety research team that's made up of feed scientists, animal nutritionists, and veterinarians. And we work collaboratively as a group to better understand how feed or ingredients could be a source of disease entry or disease transmission. And um, that has since led to the potential for um, African swine fever virus and understanding how it could potentially be spread or transmitted through feed or ingredients. Gosh, I remember when PEDV was really first up and coming and the conversations being held there. And now we're really transferring here, talking about African swine fever. And you, of course, have been doing some research like we have talked a little bit about so far. But I want to kind of get caught up to speed with African swine fever because, of course, it's transmittable through fomites and a couple of different things. So why don't you give us some background on ASF and kind of bring us up to speed? Sure. African swine fever virus is, is a disease that um, I tend to talk about has, has the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
And so the good thing about African swine fever virus, and I think it's important for us to understand this, is that humans cannot contract the disease. It's only contracted by pigs. Um, and so that would include and, and be um, potentially include domestic pigs, but also wild boar and feral pigs. But humans cannot contract the disease by consuming pork or being exposed to affected animals. It's also not transmissible to other non-swine species. And so something like um, cattle or goats um, would not be susceptible to African swine fever virus. As the name suggests, it is only a swine-associated virus. And that's about as good as we can say about ASF. Um, what we do know, unfortunately, is that it is really, really devastating to the pigs when it when it is ultimately um, impacting them. And so that's where we know that from, from the good side, it's only pigs, but then the bad is that it can be transmitted from wild boar or ticks to domestic pigs, and it causes a delayed case fatality that unfortunately leads to a frequent misdiagnosis. And so as we're trying to figure out what this disease is in a new production system, we unfortunately can spread it through fomites um, and continue to have those contract um, contacts. And then finally, the ugly. Again, thinking about it in terms of the good, the bad, and the ugly, there is no available vaccine or treatment. Um, there are certainly some vaccines that show promise, but as we stand in um, January of 2022, there's no available vaccine on the market. Like you mentioned, it survives in fomites for extensive periods of time, and that's how we believe that it can be spread to new areas. And finally, the virus is just spreading faster than the speed of research. As we continue to try to understand more about the disease, it, it, its speed of transmission and entry into new countries is far surpassing the answers that we can come up with. And that's probably the scariest point that we have is that the virus continues to spread faster than we can do research to be able to try to contain it. So you talk about, you know, the good thing that if humans were to eat, you know, a contaminated pork product or something, we wouldn't get it. So does that provide some kind of good news when we're talking about ASF hitting the U.S.? Because in my mind, you know, if we did have cases of African swine fever, we can still eat pork. So do you understand what I'm trying to ask there? Is it really as bad as we're thinking that it might be? Yeah, no, I think that that's a, 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 an excellent question. And really, even though it does not affect humans and it's not a human health concern, because of the mass mortality and fatality that it has within pigs, really the way that we have a, our current plan to manage or, or mitigate the disease if it ever were to enter the United States would be through a stamping out policy. And so um, we would not actually want to move those pigs to market because we would be concerned about potentially spreading the disease further to affect more animals. And so while it's not a concern to the humans that are consuming it, it is still a significant concern if this were to enter the United States because it would drastically shift our ability to access pork, but also uh, more, maybe more importantly, our ability to potentially export pork. Um, about a third of the um, pork that we produce in the United States is exported. And if we have African swine fever virus enter entering the United States, that very much drops our um, ability to export not just pork, but many of our other proteins as well. 
Gotcha. I, I didn't know if that was a kind of silly question there, but you bring up some good points when it comes to when it comes to our exports and things of that nature. So I'm glad that we kind of hit that. But another thing that I really want to hit on is how it can spread to the U.S. Because in the article that I read that you're quoted in on Brownfield Ag News, you talk about the ways that it can enter through the U.S., you know, what's likely, what's not likely. So I want to pick your brain a little bit there. Sure, and really, our um, as we look at how to, how African swine fever virus has spread from kind of 2007 to where we stand today in 2022, there's really two main routes that we've seen the disease spread globally. The first is through nose-to-nose contact in wild boar. This is really what we're seeing in kind of Eastern Europe and now, unfortunately, in Southeast Asia, where once the disease enters an area of the of, of those continents, it's really been difficult to eradicate completely. But as we've seen new countries or new regions go positive with the virus, it's really following the trajectory and the migration patterns of those wild boar. And so we would expect that to really just be a relatively slow, but important nose-to-nose contact in wild boar or feral pigs. As we look in the United States, we're fortunate because Canada, Mexico, the U.S. are all free of the disease. And so that likelihood of transmission is pretty low, right? There is there is no potential for direct nose-to-nose contact through wild boar or feral pigs right now. And so we really, as we look at prevention, we're trying to prevent the other type of um, entry, which is through fomites. And that's really what we've seen globally. Whenever the virus jumps more than 100 kilometers at a time, The epidemiology suggests that it's not because a pig moved that far or a wild boar carrying the disease moved that far that quickly, but instead it's more likely that a fomite or an ingredient or maybe um, some poor biosecurity was potentially the reason that that virus entered a new territory or a new region that was more than 100 kilometers from any of the other nearest animals. And so when we look at here in the United States, how do we continue to prevent ASF? It's really focused on preventing that indirect method of transmission. And those potential options could be imported pork products from other countries. It could be on shoes of travelers that are coming in, um, or it could be potentially on feed or ingredients, which is the area of research that our team works on. So you talk here about, you know, not if, but when. And so in theory, when African swine fever hits the U.S., what are some plans in place that maybe producers can have to maybe mitigate the spread or stop it from ever coming onto their farms or what can, you know, higher level agencies do? Do you have kind of a plan that you might suggest the U.S. go into when African swine fever hits us? That's a great question, and and I don't mean to be an alarmist when I say that it's not an if but when, because I've fortunately been wrong over the past couple of years. I, I really have thought, based on how the disease has spread globally, that the United States would have had ASF by this point, and we are fortunate, and I think it's a huge credit to our, our regulatory agencies and our producers for taking a lot of steps already to prevent 
to prevent the disease from entering and occurring domestically. In order to continue that, um, I will just hit on a few things that are already ongoing that are part of those efforts. So for example, USDA already prevents the importation of live pigs or of pork or pork products from any countries that are positive for the disease. And um, so the direct importation of, of the disease is, is very, very low likelihood. There's always some concern about product being smuggled in. And so, if the, you know, you think about passenger luggage on an aircraft or on a, on a cruise, perhaps. But we also have some excellent border patrol agents that are trained to identify and um, they utilize beagles to actually sniff out those smuggled pork products. And so actually I was just reading an article where um, there was almost one ton of pork products that was stopped um, from entering the United States during a, during a specific time period. And so um, we know that those actions are important and they, they continue to be important. And so education of that is really key, making sure that we don't have someone accidentally bringing in some type of pork product and then somehow that gets disposed of improperly um, and potentially then consumed by a feral pig or, or a wild pig in, in some parts of the country. As we look maybe more realistically or more practically to what pork producers can be doing right now, I think it is important for them to recognize this is a very real risk and they should start taking these actions of understanding where is this most likely to enter their production system. We've done a lot of work on the feed side of things to understand how likely are different types of feed ingredients to serve as a vector of this disease or as an entry point that can carry this in, but really just emphasizing our standard biosecurity practices that we already utilize in the United States to exclude our domestic pathogens, making sure that those are are very tight and that they're being complied with on a routine, regular basis each and every day by every single person, that's our best hope to continue to keep ASF out of our production systems. So just a final question here, Dr. Jones, as we kind of wrap up our conversation, <clears throat> excuse me, as we wrap up our conversation, I wanna hit a little bit on the vaccines because it's been a, a few months, I would say, since we've, or since I at least have consumed any news talking about um, vaccines being distributed in China. And of course, those were just being produced by people and not, you know, regulated or anything like that. So do you think that we have the potential to see some of these um, black market vaccines come to light here in the U.S.? I don't know about the potential for the, the black market vaccine um, component as much. I think we have some pretty clear regulatory protocols um, and, and compliance in place. And our pork producers are very respective of that process. But I am optimistic that we will see a vaccine come about here within hopefully the next year or two. Um, there was a publication about six months ago where USDA um, and, and their work in collaboration with some of the folks at Plum Island, um, that they, they announced that they have a, an excellent vaccine candidate 
which is really exciting. Then we get into, unfortunately, the challenges of vaccine replication and making sure that we can scale that up and that that product, that that vaccine is safe and effective and we can produce enough quantities of it. Um, And we're a long ways away from that yet. And so our main goal, even as we sit here today in early 2022, is prevention, 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 because as long as we can continue to make to keep this devastating disease out of the United States, um, that is our primary goal. But meanwhile, there are lots of researchers and, and different groups that continue to make progress on developing a vaccine for the unfortunate situation if we ever do get into that situation. Well, Dr. Jones, we certainly appreciate you coming on and sharing bits about your research of African swine fever with us. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks again there to Dr. Jones from K-State for coming on and chatting with me about African swine fever and the research that her and her team has done. Certainly interesting things when we talk about when slash if African swine fever does hit the U.S. and really what's going to happen and the implications that it might bring. We only have one other podcast tomorrow, so be sure to tune in before the weekend at agnewsdaily.com. With that, I'm going to let the people go.